0: chapter 11 of julia reed this librivox recording is in the public domain julia reed by pansy chapter 11 in which my head gets ahead of my heart it was about this time that i worked myself into a perfect fever of anxiety over a waterfall not the falls of niagara nor any of those wondrous lesser glories of that name but an indescribable wad to where fastened by innumerable pins on the back of my head My hair was a rich golden brown, and was long and plentiful, at least so it had once seemed to me, but do what I would, work and twist until midnight, and cry with vexation afterward, I could by no means create the nondescript creature that ladies were at that time in the habit of perching on their heads. My heart had been bitter within me ever since the day in which Mrs. Tyndall had said, "'How very prettily you arrange your hair! I don't see how you manage it yourself. Kate has to do mine.' but my dear do you know you sadly need a braid of hair to band around the back part then you could push the side braids further forward and you would have an elegantly shaped waterfall really when nature has done so much for you it is almost wicked not to do the rest but braids of hair are expensive articles i said and tried to make my tone an indifferent one. Oh, not so very an elegant short one can be procured for ten dollars and you know your waterfall really hasn't the right shape without one. After that, I tried in vain to make it the right shape. It is amazing to me, even now, to think what an exceedingly awkward shape it seemed to take after that talk. The subject began to haunt me. It came to me in church, in the midst of Dr. Mulford's sermons. It stared at me from the pages of my Bible. I dreamed of it at night, and thought and planned and worried about it by day. How to get a braid of real hair to band around my waterfall, that was the momentous question. It must be real hair, for Mrs. Tyndall had emphatically declared that she considered all imitations unendurable. There was one way in which to do it. I had been planning certain little gifts for Mother and Sadie and Alfred. I had in mind exactly what each would like. I had packed them in imagination in a neat little box, and written the accompanying letter scores of times and I had discovered what the whole would cost, and most provokingly the figures stared at my troubled heart during those trying days, for they expressed the exact sum that would also buy that braid of hair. At last the long struggle was concluded, a chance word settled it. When I was dressing for Mrs. Simmons' social, Mrs. Tyndall came into my room with a ticket for the reading-room, a Christmas gift from Mr. Tyndall, and remarked, as she watched me braid my hair, Your hair is precisely the color that Jerome is always raving over. He says the greatest charm a woman can possess is great masses of goldy-brown hair. Instead of stopping to moralize over the astonishing amount of mental and moral culture that a woman would have to possess before she would be gifted with this greatest charm, I hastened my dressing, went out a little ahead of Mrs. Tyndall, to do some errands, and when I returned, had a braid of goldy-brown hair tucked guiltily under my shawl poor silly me i remember i sat up half the night to fashion a collar for sadie and to try to construct a cap for mother that would look as good as new out of a worn-out lace veil and finally cried over the queer shape of the crown and the general air of used-upness that the wretched black thing had about it oh the trials of poverty and waterfalls but didn't i blossom out on new year's morning talk of solomon arrayed in all his glory it didn't seem to me that he could have compared with me. My black silk had been in the hands of Mrs. Tyndall's favorite dressmaker for three days, and returned to me bristling with ruffles and perfect as to pannier, in all respects a wonderful creation. My laces were rich and soft and elegant, befitting the donor. They were Mrs. Tyndall's Christmas gift. I had gathered from the conservatory geranium leaves and a single spray of rare bright blossoms, which did duty in lieu of a breastpin, and finally I was crowned with that magnificent braid of hair, which Mrs. Tyndall pronounced perfect. That lady would have made a study for an artist. She wore her favorite color, a delicate trying shade of blue, exquisite as to trimming and finish, as flawless in taste as in material. And, arrayed thus, we waited in the handsome parlors for New Year's calls. It was my first experience in that scene of the whisking in and out of a half a dozen gentlemen at a time so constantly followed by a half a dozen more, that presently one lost one's balance, and ceased to remember people as individuals, but as number forty-five or sixty-two, as the case might be, and, as the day whirled on, was dimly conscious of but one idea, an eager desire to reach a higher number than Mrs. Simmons or Miss Hervey, and Mrs. or Miss somebody else. I thought it delightful. "'My patience!' Mrs. Tyndall exclaimed as, during a momentary lull, in which we were alone, something across the street surprised her out of her elegant listlessness. "'If there isn't Dr. Mulford making calls! Now, of all the queer things, doesn't that man know that he will not be expected to make calls to-day? It isn't three weeks since the funeral. Really, Julia, I never saw people in my life so utterly devoid of a sense of propriety as that family seemed to be. They are always doing queer things.' I do wish there was some way of teaching them how to act. Dear me, he is coming here. I shan't know what to say to him. Nevertheless, she arose to receive him with the utmost ease, and strongly marked expressions of gratification. This is an unexpected pleasure, she said, in silvery tones, but with a marked emphasis on the word unexpected, as, having greeted me with earnestly spoken wishes, he seated himself near her. I did not suppose we could have you among us to-day. Dr. Mulford turned a pair of kindly but deep questioning eyes on the speaker's face, and smiled quietly as he answered. "'Why was that, Mrs. Tyndall? Am I not supposed to be in a frame of mind to clasp hands with any of my people, and wish them Godspeed through the year, because my boy has gone to spend his new year in heaven?' I looked to see Mrs. Tyndall confused or silenced. She was neither. Her voice was sweet and prompt. "'If you can feel so, Dr. Mulford, I am glad.' "'but it seems to me so sad a thing. "'It is so recent, you know.' "'I know,' he said gravely. "'It is sad to miss Willie, "'and I think, if I shall be living "'until next New Year's Day, "'it will still be sad to miss him. "'But, you know, I shall not then "'be justified in deserting my social duties "'because of my sadness, "'so I cannot see what should justify me to-day.' "'Mrs. Tyndall gracefully changed the subject. "'Doctor, I must not offer you wine, I know.' but will you not refuse all refreshment? But ere she could carry out her designs, he detained her by a gesture and a word of courteous refusal, while his face saddened into a look of absolute pain, and his voice was low and full of sorrow, as he added, Mrs. Tyndall, in addition to my social call, I had an errand here to-day, a favor to ask. Which I shall doubtless be most happy to grant, she said, with a deferential bend of her handsome head, and waited with smiling eyes while her pastor hesitated, and his pale face flushed painfully as he spoke. "'You sympathize with me about my boy in heaven, my friend, and I thank you. But can you understand me if I tell you that I would be thankful to-day if his brother was as safe as Willie is?' Mrs. Tyndall's face grew grave, and she waited in respectful silence until he continued. "'I would have been thankful, I think, for almost anything that would have shielded him from the dangers and temptations of this day.' You know his besetting sin, Mrs. Tyndall, and my petition is that you will offer no wine to him if he calls on you to-day. His hostess looked relieved, and even laughed slightly. Is that all, doctor? She said brightly. You frightened me. Indeed, I think you are too hard on Norman for a little boyish folly. But you may trust me. I will not offer him a drop of anything dangerous. I think it is all absurd, she said to me, as the door closed after him. Perfectly absurd. I wonder if Dr. Mulford is going to march all over town and caution the people against demoralizing that precious son of his. How perfectly shocking in him to say that he would be thankful if Norman were dead. Poor boy, I don't wonder that he drinks, if that is a specimen of his father's regards. He didn't say so, I exclaimed, shocked into a protest. He said if Norman were as safe as Willie is. It amounts to the same thing. According to his delightful theory, people are never safe until they get to heaven. We were interrupted by more callers, and presently Norman Mulfred was announced, a bright, handsome boy of nineteen, fair-faced except for a slightly unnatural flush. He was fresh from college honors, and seemed almost intoxicated with triumph and wine, just the sort of a boy to be led into all sorts of temptation. As I looked at him, there was something about him that reminded me of Alfred, and I felt as though I could understand something of the trembling of the father's heart over his eldest son. He was in an unusually brilliant mood, and flashed quick, witty replies to Mrs. Tyndall's brightnesses that were pleasant to listen to, or would have been, had not the question of refreshment still worried me dreadfully. Of course his hostess would not offer him wine, for she had promised his father, but with the glittering glasses and sparkling liquid in full view, I did not quite understand how it was to be avoided. Mrs. Tyndall appeared to. She chatted on gracefully, without a shade of embarrassment or indecision, and at last, after other refreshments had been served, said winningly, "'I can't offer you any wine, Norman, for, you see, I have promised to be very good to-day and not tempt you.' A rich, dark flush mounted swiftly over the young man's face, but he answered with apparent indifference. "'Pray, who ought I to thank for being so deeply interested in my welfare?' One who, I am sure, is always interested in you, and anxious for you, your good father. He has taken the pains to come and see me to-day about this very matter, so you see how anxious he is. I wondered she wasn't checked in her words by the stormy glare that came into the young man's eyes, and his voice shook with suppressed passion as he spoke. I am very grateful to my father, I assure you, Mrs. Tyndall. Also to you. I wouldn't have you break your promise." but I suppose you did not also promise that I should not help myself at your hospitable table? Whereupon he walked directly over to the refreshment table, and deliberately poured for himself a goblet of wine, drained the glass, and then immediately made his adieus. "'Mrs. Tyndall, how could you?' I exclaimed, almost before he was out of hearing. "'How could I what, my dear Julia? How flushed your cheeks are! Is it too warm here?' "'I thought you promised Dr. Mulford not to offer him liquor.' I'M SURE I DIDN'T, HE WAITED ON HIMSELF, AND SHE LAUGHED GOOD-HUMOREDLY. WHAT COULD I DO? WOULD YOU HAVE HAD ME RUSH AFTER HIM AND FRANTICALLY DEMAND HIS GLASS AND DASH IT TO THE GROUND? YOU MIGHT HAVE DONE IT, MY DEAR, ONLY IT WOULD HAVE INJURED MY CARPET, BUT I AM PAST THE AGE OF HEROICS. YOU SEE, SPEAKING MORE GRAVELY, THERE IS NOTHING LEFT FOR ME TO DO. I FRANKLY STATED THE CASE, AND HE CHOSE TO TAKE THE MATTER INTO HIS OWN HANDS. I CANNOT ENGAGE TO BE CONSCIENCE FOR HIM. It serves his father right. If he had taught his son, by precept and example, the impropriety of making calls at all to-day, all these temptations, as he is pleased to call them, would have been avoided. However, gay young men do not often change their plans for such slight causes. It is all nonsense. I'll risk Norman. What if he does drink a glass of wine every now and then? So do all gentlemen. I here interposed. Dr. Douglas never does. There was a very slight curving of Mrs. Tyndall's lips, but her voice was sweet and ladylike. Dr. Douglas, my dear, is a saint. He is never at any time to be classed with common, fallible mortals. We must always remember that. As I was saying, all gentlemen take wine except a few fanatical creatures, capable of but one idea at a time. I think if Norman Mulford becomes a drunkard, it will be his father's foolish interference and mismanagement that will be to blame. Young men do not like to be led around like babies. End of chapter eleven. Recording by Tricia G.